This episode is brought to you by Wild-Eyed Schemes. Look at you. You spend years plotting and planning your life-defining ambition. And when you finally get started, fast forward to a few months later, it was an overnight success. Oh no, you've become the proverbial dog that caught the car. Psychologists call this the success syndrome, the soul-damaging experience of achieving your goals only to face the pits of emptiness and depression. From a total victory in your Second World War, to the overthrow of the Tsar, to Bob Dylan's self-portrait album, many of your greatest disappointments will come after your dreams come true. Don't let that happen to you. Turn to Wild-Eyed Schemes for your emotional self-care. They are the world's number one provisioner of plots that always appear eternally just beyond your grasp. How do they do it? With self-defeating prerequisites, diversionary side missions and pitfalls, hidden betrayals that make the gift that keeps on giving. The crazy conspiracy you get from wild-eyed schemes will be enjoyed until the day you die from your injuries, suddenly and unforeseen. Listen, we got this podcast from wild-eyed schemes and we couldn't be happier with it. So thank you, Wild-Eyed Schemes, for your sponsorship of the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hello, Craig. Good evening or morning, wherever you may be. <laughs> well, hey, let's go ahead and get started. Okay. Let's see. There's some news. There's a new chapter guide to Shadow of the Torturer. That's right. This one's by Matthew Sciarello. I'm taking a guess, Matthew. I don't know. I, I haven't got it yet myself, but I, you know, I certainly will. Eventually, I read everything, and I always will. I always will. In the show notes, I put a link to it in Amazon. Well, what else? Uh, Cody Martin has in the past proposed that the body that Vodalus and Thea and Hildegrind were exhuming in chapter one of Shadow is actually Thecla's, that Severian and the volunteers have entered some kind of time bubble that took them you know, just over a year ahead in time. Mm-hmm. And when Severian meets Vodalus in chapter nine of Claw, it's been for Vodalus only a couple of weeks since that event. Now, I want to reiterate that the idea that the body was somehow Thecla's has always appealed to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it gives actually meaning to why <laughs> they would be there, because otherwise we don't really... Yeah. Why is Thea random. there? Yep. Sure. Yep. Uh, there are ways to get there without time displacement or with other timey-wiminess, but the point is I do like it. I do. But when we read the meeting with Vodalus, Severian's first meeting with him on chapter uh, nine in the last episode, Craig, our conclusion was, well, we didn't think Cody's theory was beat. We we just saw it as a disconfirmation of mm-hmm. the theory. The theory was not helped. Well, Cody chimed in on Reddit to remind us Vodalus's comment when he meets Severian in the forest, quote, has it 
really been that long does not, quote, invalidate his theory. He says, it's unlikely to be a comment on Severian's age, as he was already the size of a grown man, and a 16-year-old isn't too different in appearance from an 18-year-old. It could easily be an exclamation of surprise that Severian has gone from apprentice to traveling headsman in a matter of weeks. We also know from next chapter, that's the one in this episode, and much later in Citadel, that Hildegrin has been tailing Severian and believes him to be someone of significance. Vodalus may suspect a ruse and is merely trying to shake Severian up by yeah. commenting on how unbelievable this suspected spy's change in vocation is. And he says, and we also learn in Citadel that the Alzabo has some side effects on a person's mind that causes them to hallucinate in similar ways to Severian's memory. If Vodalus has had enough of these Alzabo banquets, it's safe to say his mind is not unscathed. He may legitimately forget how long it's been. And that's, we're going to have someone else with another theory about that coming up. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I, it, it totally depends on... Yeah, I, I admit that comment is able to be read in many ways. Yeah, as they yeah. all are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cody thinks it's enough to keep my pet theory afloat, and that's true <laughs> enough, Cody. And I'm not lying that it seems to me that there is simply a structural probability, given the appearance of the corpse's hair and the clothes, the association with Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, and the question of why Theo was along for the trip to support the idea that something is up along these lines. Mm -hmm. And then let's see what else we got. I posted a reader interview with Sierra Reynolds this week. Yep. It's reader interview 11. If you're coming to this discussion much later, Sierra doesn't post a lot. She just lurks because you know, there's so many smart people who know so much. <laughs> and then she alerted me to the first, that the word cacogen has an old everyday use to refer to an antisocial person that was in lexicon earthus, but I never latched onto it as a potential everyday word. And I did some investigation inspired by our conversation. And well, I think the meaning is much stronger than she'd like to use it. It's not just a non-social person, but an anti-social person, as in anti-social behavior, like graffiti on your neighbor's garage door, or letting your dog poop in their St. Augustine lawn. <laughs> but you know, it's an old word, and there's a well-observed trend in strong terms being softened over time. So I think I can endorse her use of the term for someone who would prefer to forego an outing with friends and just stay home looking up the etymology of names in the book <laughs> of the new sun. I'd certainly like to be a cacogen. Well, now we know what my friends should have called me in high school. <laughs> I, they would call up and ask me to do something. And I'd tell my mom to tell them I wasn't there because I was reading. And <laughs> they found that out one time that I had done that for a long time. They were not happy. But, yeah. Introverts of the world unite. In, yeah. <laughs> in silence and in separate <laughs> Separately. And speaking of names in the Book of the New Sun, Sierra noted that the name Jonas is very similar to the name Janus, the two-faced Roman god of doors with faces that point in opposite direction. Yeah, this is cool. Yeah, this well, is really Jonas cool departs through Father Aeneas' mirrors, a two-faced door, if there ever was one, and as an android and a human, he literally has two faces. Two faces, yep. And then 
we were talking about parallels between Severian and Jonas. Well, there is a long tradition of supposition about the parallels between Jonas and Hathor, because like Clark Kent and Superman, like Bruce Wayne and Batman, Peter Parker and Spider-Man, Jonas and Hathor never seem to occupy the same place at the same time. At Piteous Gate, Jonas shows up and then Hathor ducks his head under his hat and soon disappears, seemingly. And in a soon upcoming chapter, Jonas and Severian will get attacked by Notules, and then Jonas will make a hasty exit, and lo, here comes Hathor. And Jonas exits through mirrors, and Hathor has mirrors, sails, mirror sails that he uses to call up his, you know, his menagerie horribleists, his awful critters. And they are both sailors. And that's not all. Hathor is famously pining for his lost artificial girlfriend, his sex doll, who has violet eyes and hands like da -da 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 doves. Well, <laughs> the name Jalenta, the woman Jonas pines for, and this is not in Lexicon Earthus, that name is associated with the name Iolantha, which means violet flower. And she's an artificial girl, if there ever was one, like Rose in the Book of the Long Sun, probably more artificial than human. So the evidence associating Hathor with Severian is still strong, I think, but the evidence associating him with Jonas is as strong or even stronger. And we should end it here because I'm granting more confirmation to the everyone is Severian theory. And that has to stop. Right. But no, but that was such a cool thing. The more we started thinking about it, because I mean, even when she talked about it, it was it was a cool catch. But the more I think you, you and I looked into it separately, the more we kind of realized, oh, wow, that's that's really cool. So it was also really fun because she's like, yeah, I didn't want to say anything because everybody else does. And then as, uh, <laughs> it was Wits or Stuart on Facebook yeah. said something like, I love it when people say that. They're like, yeah, everybody else seems so smart. And then they come out with this like, thing that mind. nobody has noticed <laughs> in all the years of doing this. It's like, yeah, that's awesome. Yes. Uh, and speaking of that sex doll, remember uh, Neil Smith Neil had a theory that Agalus was Hathor's sex doll. And that's why Hathor was hanging around mm -hmm. outside the cell that night in chapter 30 of yeah. Shadow of the Torturer. That the face Severian saw when he first walked into the rag shop, the face of the mummified corpse was not a mask. That the only mask was his mask of Agia's face. And Agalus was the sex doll and Agia had appropriated him somehow, I guess. And I got to say that I'm thoroughly convinced that the mummified corpse face is Agalus's true face. It has to be. He wasn't wearing two masks. We only see him wearing one mask for the rest of the time until he's executed. And I guess no one bothered to look at the head after the execution. They just had the body dragged away by a mule. And, you know, it's pretty chaotic afterwards. So the only question in that case is, what is Agia doing with this resurrected corpse? And how did it die? And Severian has an instinct when they bring him to be executed that alluded to him being a soldier. But the belief that Agalus was the sex doll rather than the guy who stole the sex doll, that does draw the connection nicely. It would be a nice Wolfian misdirection. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, sex dolls. <laughs> <laughs> 
On Facebook, Mike Lejeune listened to the last episode and saw all those dead, perfectly preserved, naked, exhumed, dead bodies and thought, hey, Thor, sex doll. And my immediate, perfectly wholesome reaction was, gross, Mike. <laughs> I can see Until. that Mike and... <laughs> Until we realized other people were thinking the same thing. Yeah, I can see the I can see that Mike and Haythor would get along great if they met <laughs> at a party. But you came to his defense, Craig, and noted that we have already talked a lot more about sex dolls than we thought we would. Mm-hmm. Yep. And now here we are. Just look at me. And when you said, Well, you know, we're we're those kind of people who someone makes a joke and we sit there thinking, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we all thought that was very funny. And I swear to heaven, within a half hour, I formulated a theory. I didn't plan to. (laughs) It just came to me. And I'm going to do some mile-high theory stacking. So stand back a little. (laughs) So you know how I see a lot of parallels between that sex doll and Thea. They both Mm -hmm. have violet eyes. Thea has a voice like doves. The paracoida has hands like doves, even if she can't talk. Well, what else is a sex doll going to do? I mean, if it can't talk, it's probably going to use sign language, maybe. I've also recently proposed that the explanation for false Thecla's statement that Thecla is no more the real Thecla than she is, and that Severian thought he sensed the maid who played Holy Catherine in his room when he woke up after his elevation, and he smelled false Thecla's perfume, burning rose. So my proposition was that exultants, at least the female ones, are all clones and born in pairs, twins, and are one is randomly selected to be the exultant who will grow to a massive height, and the other is, you know, what the spare or whatever. Mm-hmm. The exultant's kybit, who will mm-hmm. donate her blood in service to the other, and, you know, who knows what else. So, Hathor, obviously, from a long time ago, lost in the stars for centuries, maybe millennia. So... Suppose he stole the original Thecla's exultant body, the original of all the clones. Maybe it was not even giant height, but it was preserved just like those bodies in the dump outside Solstice. And that's Hathor's sex doll. And that's why there are the associations. And you can even stack on top of that Neil Smith's theory that Agalus is the sex doll. It could tie it all together. Well, I mean, it could tie a lot together. It doesn't explain Jonas and Jolenta. Every way I put this contraption together, I get a few pieces left on the floor. And that's what I got. There's, yeah, a lot there that I think is connected. And I guess the thing that I want to stick with no matter what is that I do feel like whether it's the actual paracoida or something else, Heather does have to. To, in my mind, Heather's got to be tied into other things in, mm-hmm. in, in one big way or another. Um, it, and the reason why I feel like the, the paracoida thing is so promising is because that's what he gives as a motivation, right? right. So, so once then you start to get the things about Agilus or Agia, I don't, I no longer feel like that's a huge stretch anymore <laughs> to start no. making those connections because otherwise Heather just seems like a random dude. Right. And, um, but not so, but he's not supposed to be right. <laughs> yeah. But he's, but everything about him seems way too significant and similar. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, it, it still just in general feels a little too stretchy, but, mm-hmm. 
but at the same time, it it makes more sense than certain other things that seem like they ought to make sense. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> otherwise, just who is this random paracoida that he talks about? You're right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not going to tell you you're wrong this time. <laughs> <laughs> And in that same vein, Stuart Ham mentioned on Facebook that when we did that episode last time and talked about the corpses and the cryogenic and the everything, it made him wonder whether there was some kind of connection between those corpses and the ones that we eventually see in Long Sun. Which, the sleepers. The sleepers, right? which that to me brings up all kinds of questions of, I assume they were clones, whether or not they're all clones of Typhon and his family, probably. Well, I, I think, no, well, I, mean, I think the, the clones are all, if they're sleepers, of course we have, uh, it's not really spoiling anything. Yeah. You have, you have some embryos. Those are clones, I believe. Uh, we have the uh, sleepers. I those are real people. Those are full people, right? That's yeah. right. So yeah, so those could be people. But either way, Stuart was wondering, well, is there a connection between those two things? And again, you, you just don't know right? whether, right? You don't know whether Wolf was thinking that far ahead into Long Sun and what was going to go on there. But I don't know. There, there could well be some kind of connection there that these are similar kinds of discarded plans that right. never got off the ground, literally. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But it's definitely something funny. I, we had to mention that because Stuart, was, he was very excited. About it. <laughs> he was a little mad when the thread got kind of pulled off course. Take it over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And connections between Long Short and New Sun are always iffy to me just because I never know. I never I never have a good sense of how much how much connection to make there. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 hard. It's risky to try to explain this, but I don't even like using Earth and New Sun mm-hmm. to explain a lot of this. Yeah. Book. So yeah. Let's see. On Twitter, Fred Kish uh, thinks Severian's story is a deliberate wink at Gilbert and Sullivan's Mikado, and he cites the "Behold the Lord High Executioner" song. Some background in Act One: Coco is with the Lord High Executioner of of Titipu. And he's been sentenced to death for flirting, and no one can be executed until Coco cuts off his own head. And in that song, he explains how he became the Lord High Executioner. Taken from the county jail by a set of curious chances, liberated men on bail, on my own recognizances, wafted by a favoring game. As one sometimes is in trances To a height that few can scale Saved by long and weary dances Surely never had a male Under such like circumstances So adventurous a tale Which may rank with most romances Well, there's certainly some overlap there. Check it out. Yeah. Brett Loftinus uh, thinks the seamless gray stone of the Manapes Mountain is probably concrete. He says the juxtaposition of what is a ubiquitous modern material to us has become a relic of the ancient past in Severian's time. And that would be something that would appeal to Wolf, I think, because the recipe for making concrete was lost for centuries. So thank you so much to everyone who has posted theories, some serious, some trivial, 
on uh, the Rereading Wolf subreddit, a borrowed mannequin proposed that the story of Holy Catherine could be not only associated with the legend of St. Catherine of Alexandria, but also with St. Dorothea of Alexandria and Hypatia, the pagan philosopher who was murdered by a mob of Christians in Alexandria. Really good. Also, Fulgen and Tonic proposed that the Vodalari, as someone also has uh, theorized, that they are addicted to and to some extent addled by their repeated use of Alzabo. And I, I can't say I disagree. I mean, I yeah. myself noted that uh, Vodalists seem to be using it the same way Charles Manson used it with the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, seminarian uh, Imragulio posted a, quote, fun new theory that Severian might not be the true author of the Book of the New Sun, and another post that perhaps almost every named character is either an android, a chem, a robot, a time-traveling or time-displaced person, a clone, genetically modified animals, or alien or alien-human hybrid. And finally, we want to say thanks to Derek Varn and Patrick DeWind, for supporting us on, I hope I'm, you know what? I don't even know if I'm pronouncing DeWind right. It could be DeWind, right? Could be. For supporting us at the journeyman level. Also at the master level, thank you, Jonathan at Ringer. Ring on your bell. Stuart Ham. And T Holder. But you know it's big T, homie, yeah. And now, Craig. Let's get a short lunch and have a meet and greet with Vodalus and Thea. <laughs> but don't spoil your appetite because the big meal is coming up in oh. the following chapter in just two short weeks. I ate long before because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> chapter 10, Thea. Okay, here we are. I think you'll have something to say about this because you seem to be vaguely interested in Thea <laughs> Maybe for various reasons. I'm not sure why. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, so we just to just to set things up. This is the day after Marwenna's execution, morning or noon after Severian fought the Man Apes, and the day that Severian is supposed to execute Barnock, and it's 24 hours since this volume started. Severian met the Green Man yesterday. If Severian left the tower on Sunday afternoon, it's probably the following Saturday or Sunday morning. Severian and Jonas have been abducted this morning by Vodalari and have been ferried to Vodalus's camp on a massive Balukathir, killing their abductors and the driver as they entered the camp, where Vodalus sits on his little throne conducting business in a glade. I think that's the only time I've heard an elephant described as ferrying someone but i like that yeah that's yeah, pretty yeah. cool well sure yeah, <laughs> i guess yeah it is though that, what else fairies boats usually but <laughs> well you <laughs> but, didn't yeah. mention it as being part of a boat oh how about that's that that's true that's true as being like a boat as being like a boat it, actually it was that's right yeah so anyway he's conducting business in a glade and a glade is it's you know Craig, it's one of those words that i know what is meant even though i don't really know the dictionary definition of it and it's just what you think. It was open space surrounded by woods. Mm-hmm. And as I said, after conducting some business, they are led by Vodalus along with around a dozen others for half a league to a table set among trees. 
set for brunch or lunch. A half a league is roughly as long as it takes to walk for half an hour. So they walk for around 30 minutes to get to this table. Severian sits at Vodalus's left, Vodalus on Severian's right. Severian pretends to eat. Remember, he ate breakfast at the end when they got back. Severian hasn't slept since this novel began, but he pretends to eat while he's actually, quote, feasting his eyes on Vodalus and his lady. Yeah. <laughs> so before we talk about her, the one thing about the setting that is interesting here is how, yeah, you mentioned glades and we're going to get like another little glade later. And then of course the special unique glade where the communion of a sort happens mm -hmm. in the next chapter. But yeah, so we've got this weird setting where it's the forest, but they treat this whole thing almost like this whole area of the forest, almost like it's a kind of fortress. forest castle or fortress. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And there's little rooms and glades and, and mm -hmm. they lead Severian and uh, Jonas in a little bit over to, you know, a little part by a creek where they can lay. But it also brings to mind a little bit how the tree at the end of Lost Loves was also a kind of foliage area yeah right but it yeah. had spaces kind of carved out not not identical by any means but it's very much it's sort of a, a motif i guess that i hadn't noticed before but how there are places here that you don't realize are not necessarily artificial but that are serving as like structures that you only kind of realize they're real structures after the fact. Like, I don't think that this is actually a fortress that's laid out or something like they're just using parts no. of the forest is how I imagine it. But still it's very odd how this is kind of similar to when we find out the house absolute that you don't necessarily know that you're in it. Right. So there is a way that something about this area is kind of like a smaller version of the house absolute because it's, just kind of out there and it may not be the actual formal place itself, but mm. you kind of wander into it. And then all of a sudden it's like, who knew I was in the, you know, <laughs> the audience chamber or something, right, yeah. but I guess I was. And look, it's um, the green room. So yeah, but it was, it just struck me this time how there's something about this book where there are things that you don't necessarily think of as buildings, like either a tree or a rocket ship or a part of the forest or what the house absolute literally is, which become these sort of formalized spaces after you realize that you're there. And I think that's kind of cool. It's just yeah. something I hadn't really thought of Wolf doing before, but it's a, it's a cool pattern. No idea if that means anything, but <laughs> I just noticed it. Yeah. Okay. So I guess we should talk about Thea. Yeah. Uh, so St. Thea, it was from Gaza and Palestine, and she was arrested with some other Christians during the persecution of Christians under Emperor Maximian, who is a key player in the legend of St. Catherine. And so when she denounced him for threatening to place her in a brothel, he had her scourged. Um, another uh, Christian woman actually protested and he eventually had them tortured and he bound Thea and the, uh, and the woman Valentina together and had them burned to death. Hmm. That's the story. Now there is actually a, a god, Thea, also, and she is the consort of Hyperion, who is the father of Helios, the son. So, oh, I've already gone through all of that. I don't really know what else to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, I, I like the idea of the, she's not exactly the mother of the son, but she's related to, yeah, she's, she's the consort of the father's son. So, right. um, 
Interesting. But we do have a sun connection then. But yeah, as far as the actual saint, I mean, my gut is that the name is probably there because of its similarity to Thecla's name. But Saint I'm trying to think other than um, because the story that you have, I mean, she's she calls someone out. But for the most part, she's sort of more there as a martyr. Right. So. Right. Is what it sounds like from the story. So, yeah. So still not a whole lot. Yeah. There's nothing directly, but I, I got to tell you the truth. If I was going to guess, here's my, here's my personal Curiositas Earthus about the mm-hmm. development of these names. Okay. Curiositas Earthus. I think that Thea came first because of her association with the uh, Catherine legend because she's associated with the same emperor mm-hmm. or maybe well you know i have to believe that 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 the association with the sun was real and i think that that wolf went looking for a saint a female saint whose name brought to mind the thorn and i think he didn't find one and so i think he thought oh well thecla the claw it could be named the claw and that's how we got the claw. It would be so cool if we could actually get drafts that showed up. We talked about this last time or mm-hmm. a couple times ago. Oh, that would be so awesome if we could actually <laughs> see some of this stuff. Yeah. Even if it just made more of a labyrinth, like it would still just be so fun to be able to tell. Yeah. Well, I'm very well well aware in this particular chapter that what I'm doing is the just the same sort of a just so naming explanation that Thea wrongly applies. So, <laughs> but we'll get to that. So I guess Thea is on the other side of Vodalus on his right at the table. And Severian says of Thea, quote, whom I had so often recalled as I lay on my cot among the apprentices in our tower. In this case, he's talking about recalling both Vodalus and Thea. And that phrasing too is fun because it's not just remembering Vodalus. He's actually talking about remembering her, which if, like you said, if Thea was the first love mm. for first Severian, then that phrasing seems a little more pointed than just, I would remember her and Vodalus and the whole night of the, yeah. Yeah. Now Severian was a kid when he met Vodalus and Severian says that when you're a kid, all grown men look tall unless they're very short. And it's an issue of authority. So he had no real understanding of how tall Vodalus was. And now he can see that he's maybe a little taller than Thecla and Thea, and that Thea is about the same height as Thecla. And this is the first time we are flatly told that, like Olten, Vodalus and Thea are exultants, like Thecla. We could have made that assumption, I suppose, about Thea. He says they aren't, quote, merely armagers like Sir Raucho. And this is the third reference we've made to Raucho. So nope. if you want to build theories around him, you have every good reason. Yep. And it surprised me again this time when I was rereading for this, for us to talk, because I was like, ah, oh, this dude, <laughs> like, why is he here again? But yeah, he is the one, which I remember too, just thinking about how it was first published. This is a second volume. He hasn't mentioned Raucho except someone in a book that you would have maybe read last year. So Mm -hmm. to bring him up here, I mean, yes, Wolf was writing them all at the same time and he had easy access to look back and whatnot, but still doing that 
by knowing that you're going to mention something that was in a previous book that was already a very small character, it, it either has to be important or it has to be there intentionally to throw you off or something. Yeah. Like yeah. I mean, he could have, he could have used, um, Valeria as mm-hmm. a example of an armature. You know, she was definitely, you're going to understand why she comes back yeah. later on and why she's on his mind, but Raljo, but if I do build a theory around him, I, I just want him to mean more than what we've come up with mm-hmm. so far. I'm, I'm mean, I'm just saying. Yeah. I still wonder if he was Syriac's husband. <laughs> but that's not enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> so Severian says, It was with Thea that I had first fallen in love, worshipping her because she belonged to the man I had saved. Thecla I had loved in the beginning because she recalled Thea. Now, as autumn dies and winter and spring and summer comes again, the end of the year as it is its beginning, I loved Thea once more. Because she recalled Thecla. Yeah. It's all a great cycle. And in case I've never pointed this out on Mike, uh, Severian knew what Thea looked like that night, right down to her violet eyes, a color not quite blue and not quite black. But for Hildegrand, who was closest, Severian bumped into him, after all, he could only recognize him by his voice. And that, among so many reasons, is why I've always thought Thea was a mystery but I don't anymore. She's completely explained, except for <laughs> Hathor's violet-eyed paracoito with hands like Thea's voice, like doves, that is. So what I think is also weird about that whole little passage where he talks about, like, not just who he loved first, but the way he describes why he loves everybody there is because they remind him of something else. Mm-hmm. Like, that's... It, Where's the that, start? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's an odd way to to describe to me being in love with someone because you're intentionally sort of making it weird and psychoanalytic oh, <laughs> almost by it's saying, like a, you know, it's like a wedding ring kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess, uh, but, uh, but it's just this whole weird thing of, you know, you're not ever just sort of fascinated by the one person in front of you, but it's because of some, some mm. other thing that you want that reminds you of someone else. Yeah. Um, but it's probably very right for Severian. Like the more we think about this, he doesn't have any sort of innocent crushes on anyone except maybe Dorcas. Yeah. I don't know, but everyone else, um, it seems like he's sort of in love with them because they remind him of something or because they, they had some passionate connection about something else that they were going through. Uh, yeah, but there's, there's nothing sort of, especially the way he describes this, nothing seems very innocent about Severian's love. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, even Dorcas, he's bound to see something of his own face in Dorcas, right? So Severian always thinks he's being surreptitious when he's checking Thea out. Yeah, remember the false Thecla's comment at House Azure when he mm-hmm. was checking out false Thea? She thought his eyes were going to roll out of his head. So now Vodalus says, oh, you're an admirer of women. <laughs> and Severian looks down. He says, um, I have been little in polite company, sir. Please forgive me. Vodalus says, oh, no, no, no. She's a good looking woman. Nothing to forgive. He just hopes Severian wasn't admiring Thea's neck with professional interest, looking for the right place to cut it. Vodalus is still considering whether Severian could be a spy, you know. Yeah. Also, too, he's young, right? So the, there's got to be some kind of poking fun at him here of like, hey, mm-hmm. you're a teenage kid. You're, you <laughs> and know. also a guy who cuts off heads for a living. So. Right, right. But that whole thing about like, I see you're an admirer of women. You know, it's yeah. like, well, what 17-year-old boy 
isn't, <laughs> you know, or, or just take the equivalent, you know, whatever identification you would, or, you know, you are raging hormones, no matter what. Yeah. So anyway, Severian says, you know, oh, never, I would never think about cutting off her head. And he says, well, great. <laughs> and he picks up a platter of thrushes and he puts one on Severian's plate. And this is apparently a special honor. But Vodalus has the same prejudices of the torturers that Thecla had when they first met. He says, still, I own I am a trifle surprised. I would have thought that a man in your profession would look upon us poor human beings as much a butcher does on cattle. And at that, Severian encounters, of that I cannot inform you, sir. I have not been bred a butcher. Ouch. Yeah. And it shows a couple things. It first of all shows, I think, that Vodalus doesn't know much about the inner workings mm -hmm. of the autarky, like it, which kind of goes against the or at, at least, least the guild, right? Or at least the guild. But I mean, yeah, I I still got the sense that you know, even if like if they were sending Thecla there because she had been messing around with Vodalus, um, it still seems like it's pretty intentional. Like the autarch mm -hmm. knows about it, other people know about it. Yeah. Um, even though but, the autarch or, says he didn't know anything about it. Right. I know. Yeah. But, I don't um, believe him. Right. <laughs> but it also means that Vodalus doesn't have his finger on the pulse of sort of the deep inner workings. Like I think, or I would think that Severian would kind of assume. And so mm. when I read this, this time, it seems to me like one of the first, you were talking about tells before, but this is maybe one of the first times that Severian sees Vodalus become a little less sort of mythological because you're yeah. like, Oh, he doesn't know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, he does have his thing about the, the guild and the dignity, but it's also a, a tell that, Oh, this Vodalus isn't quite so omniscient as maybe right. I had thought he was. Yeah. Uh, and incidentally, remember that one of the meanings of Madachin is butcher. That's true. That is very true. Yeah. Which suggests what other people think of them. Mm -hmm. And anyway, but this Vodalus laughs, he finds, Severian's personal dignity, charming, maybe in a cute way, like a puppy barking at a mastiff. And he says, a touch, which is actually just English for touche. Mm -hmm. And he says, now that he's sorry that Severian has agreed to serve him, because now he can't hold him hostage and trade him for Barnock. And that would have meant that he could sit around with him and have interesting conversations, just like Severian did with Thecla. Yeah, which... There's a little bit of fun irony for you. Like mm -hmm. You're just one step away from being in the same kind of situation that Thecla was in with you. Yeah. And and it seems like Severian doesn't comment on that, uh, but at least he includes it. But yeah, that seems like you're definitely supposed to remember that uh, the sort of very aware irony of that. Right. And I suppose this means that Barnock has not been rescued. If he was ever executed, we don't know. Right. And I, I had assumed that he was like, because Severian has that moment where right after Marwina, he's like, and I'm not going to go through all the other details here. I performed mm. my other, right. you know, from here on out, I just, just know that I did it. Um, so I assumed that he did all both executions at the same time. Yeah. I, I had thought, but yeah, but they get, yeah, but they get abducted as soon as they walk in. I, yeah. I don't know. I guess it's possible that Severian says, okay, I gotta go in. I gotta, here, let me chop off this guy's head. And now let's go have some breakfast after yeah. a long night. Yeah, that's kind of how I had read it before that he, he was sort of implying, and then I also killed Barnard, but I'm or Barnock, but I'm not going to go into detail right. about it because I just told you about Marwina. <laughs> yeah, but we don't know. He's never he's not clear about it. Yeah, but they did plan. I mean, they planned to to hold him as a ransom for Barnock, so he's got to be still back there. 
Now Severian learns that Vodalus has plans for him to leave tomorrow morning. And Vodalus says, yet I think I have an errand for you that will consort well with your own inclinations. And Severian replies, if it's your errand, sir, it must consort well with my inclinations. And again, Vodalus likes this. He says, you're wasted on the scaffold. But before Severian can serve him, he has to understand something of the position of the pieces on the board and the goal of the game that we play. Call the sides white and black. And in honor of your garments, so that you shall know where your interests lie, we shall be black. No doubt you've been told that we blacks are mere bandits and traitors. But have you any notion of what it is we strive to do? And Severian says, to checkmate the autark, sir. That would be well enough, but it's only a step and not our final goal. You've come from the Citadel. I know you see something of your journeyings and history, that great fortress of bygone days, so you must possess some feeling for the past. Has it never struck you that mankind was richer by far and happier too, a Chiliad gone than it is now? Severian says, everyone knows that we have fallen far from the brave days of the past. As it was then, so shall it be again. And notice that Vodalus seems to know more of the actual history of the Citadel than Severian. I mean, it, it does seem that That's way. That's true, that, that he knows more about the, the sort of bigger picture of right. the context. Yeah. So, and then we keep going with the cyclical talk. As it was then, so shall it be again. Men of Earth, sailing between the stars, leaping from galaxy to galaxy, the masters of the daughters of the sun. So, Vodalus is campaigning against the policies of autarky that have deliberately turned its back on technological progress and presumably returning to the stars. So Vodalus is allied with the Megatherians, Abaya and Erebus, and with the Eskians who serve them in order to accomplish this. And we don't know what Askia, Ashia is like, but we gather from Severian's conversation with the Autark that they do not live in quasi-medieval technological culture like the Commonwealth. The Autark says, if you want progress, the Asians have it. So, I mean, it's tempting because of the Maoist Orwellian nature of their speech to think of them like China in the 1940s or North Korea. But, Craig, I think it might be more practical to think of them like Orwell's Oceana or even something more advanced than that. That's what I was wondering, too. It's hard because when we actually see him, Severian talks about how they all look ill, but those are mm -hmm. also the soldiers, right? I mean, those are the soldiers who've been out on the front. So it's hard to know if that's what a standard Ashian looks like, you know, just sort of lifeless and full yeah. of and weakened and whatnot. But yeah, the actual place itself may be a kind of, uh, you know, super hygienic <laughs> kind <laughs> of, you know, I don't know, cold type of... right. Yeah. Well, the Megatherians, particularly Erebus and Abaya, might be just pushing Eskia to its limits in order to defeat the Commonwealth before yeah. it's too late. But, you know, if Vodalus thinks the Megatherians can break out of Earth to get to the stars and the galaxies, then I have to doubt that because Askia isn't the base of a galactic empire. And I suppose that's the reason the heroes put the black hole in the sun to lock. Earth's humanity on the planet and to prevent them from continually colonizing other ships and sending warrior ships and soldiers. It's pointed out that there must be other humans on other planets, but it seems to me that they don't thrive there in numbers. 
That's the only way I get the goals that the autark describes to match the methods that the heroes employed. And obviously, I don't think the heroes are merely liars, uh, you know, equivalent to the Megatherians in every way. It's strange because I don't, I still don't really get Vodalus's role in this, right? Because <laughs> I, I get the sense from when we actually talk to the old autark that Vodalus is more of a pawn that they've set up like like mm -hmm. so, and, and this is a, a difference as i was kind of reading through some older stuff people couldn't really agree on whether Vodalus was someone who was completely manipulated like by the old autark and and uh the uh house absolute or whether he was someone who was rebelling already and they just kind of were outsmarted him and took him over like i had always gotten the sense that he was intentionally put there to be some kind of distraction or to be yeah. some kind of scapegoat for something else. But I know I could tell other people were definitely thinking that, you know, maybe he really was someone who was like you said, in law in, in league with the Megatherians and who really did want to bring this kind of ashen world around. But, but he's also, I mean, the other, only thing that makes me weirded out about that is that the Ashens are also sort of, I mean, they're, they're thoroughly communal and he's still talking about mm -hmm. uh, aristocracies. Right. And I mean, right. Thea and it is going to definitely for her, it's all about basically being, you know, right. getting back in power or at least getting back in status. Um, so that's where I was like, it, it doesn't seem to me, I'm still not really convinced that Vodalus really is part of some Megatherian scheme. He might be a, like, he might be being used by him, but I, I still feel like he's just sort of uh arrogant pawn who got turned in. And I, I don't know if that's certain. Cause like I said, he still confuses the hell out of me, but um, well, I think he is, I think he is working for the Megatherians, but if you're going to have to face a revolution of, you know, traitors, why don't you set up a traitor that is actually being controlled by and manipulated by you in every way? So you know, yeah, he he he's taking all of his orders from the Megatherians. He and, and we're going to see he doesn't want to offend them in any way. They're probably giving him weapons, but the Autark doesn't seem to think that he's a great threat because he knows everything he's going to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we'll we'll figure that out because I that's one thing I'd like to do here is get clearer for myself on exactly how Vodalus is. Who's he working for exactly, and what's his awareness? <laughs> right things, yeah. Because I'm still, I'm still mushy. Yeah. Stuff. So now Thea, who was listening without showing any sign of it, stops eating, turns to Severian, and says, "Quote in a sweet cooing voice." Do you know how our world was renamed Torture? The Dawn Men went to Red Verthandi, who was then named War. And because they thought that had an ungracious sound that would keep others from following them, they renamed it, calling it present. That was a jest in their tongue, for the same word meant now and the gift. Or so one of our tutors once explained the matter to my sister and me, though I do not see how any language can endure such confusion. Yeah, so here we get a hint from the text that all this is happening in another language. Thea says, the dawn men and that's the ancient people at the dawn of humanity who <laughs> went and colonized red verthandi and <laughs> we got a hint earlier in chapter 35 in hathor's rambling speech that mars is called verthandi 
mm-hmm. this culture. And this is the first time it's spelled out or spelled out as much as Gene Wolfe is inclined to do. Right. So to Thea, Verthandi, or whatever word they use, means the gift. And they renamed Mars the gift, as in the present, because Verthandi means the present. Previously, it was a word that meant war, as Mars certainly does. Think of words like martial law uh, that is ruled by the military, or martial arts, which means the craft of warfare. Mars is, of course, the god of war. So although to Thea, the name of Mars, Verthandi, means the gift or the present, and she assumes that Mars was renamed as a marketing maneuver, look, everybody, move to the gift planet. In fact, (laughs) they named it Verthandi because it meant now. It's the planet that is the cutting edge. But in Thea's language, there's no word like the present that can also mean either a gift or the current moment. And Thea finds it crazy that anyone would have a language where one word can have more than one meaning. (laughs) And I guess it could be that the Commonwealth language is some kind of hyper-rationally designed language, that there are no words with double meanings. But you know, based on Vodalus's reaction, I think that that is not the case. I think that Thea is someone without a lot of imagination. To her, whatever A means to her, that's what it means. And that's all it should ever mean. And it's not a favorable depiction of Thea. And I think if Severian had met Thecla, absent her travails among the torturers, she'd have been every bit as unimpressive, except for her potential for cruelty. And anyway, my point is that while Thea discourses on the uh, naming of Mars, the naming process of Verthandi and how stupid it is to have a word that can mean the current moment as well as a gift, as if the current moment could ever be a gift, Vodalus listened to her as if he were impatient to speak himself, yet was too <laughs> well-mannered to interrupt her. So Vodalus would like to interject, but he can't do so without being pedantic and calling Thea a dummy. So, And I want to come back in a second to the, the names there. And I'm trying to remember now, did we talk about the Old Norse names? Of I think we have Verthandian talked about that, that they are the Norns, but let's, let's go okay. ahead and get to the other well, Norn, and then we'll, uh, we, we'll be able to talk about that. Okay. So then the other folks, they, they go to Venus, and Mars is called, you know, the now planet. Well, we're the future. We're Skull, the future planet. And she says that's why Earth had its name changed to Earth, the world of the past. But actually, you know, Earth or Erd or Weird doesn't mean the past. The names of the Norns meant present, future, and fate. And Thea is making an extrapolation about the meaning of the word based on the other two words, right? Mm-hmm. And then it gets all confusing, too, because with the Norns, that would seem to be in the logic of this. The Norn names would have been would have lasted in the memory here, right? Mm-hmm. To know that they were <laughs> the three of them were there. But of course, for us, those are also it's not like those are English words. Those are old Norse names right? for something else. So, yeah, trying to trace exactly how the the lineage of all these words, real and fake, gets yeah. a little confusing. Here. Well, mostly, you know, Wolf just loves words. Oh, yeah. um, but you know, you can see how maybe when they start, when they colonize Mars, that they said, "Oh, yeah, okay, but well, let's we have to call it something." Let's call maybe the first colony was called, you know, Verthandi, and you know how things go. Sometimes uh, an entire country is named for the biggest city on it, and then you know maybe in answer to that they really did name 
Venus, the largest you know city on, on Venus, or the first colony, sculled for the future. And the point is that Thea is making the wrong assumptions. She's got cause and effect all messed up. I do like, though, that the way she has it set up, that the future is closer to the sun. Like, that's, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Like, it's, you know, maybe, I don't know. It's just one little kind of image there. But yeah, yeah. In general, though, I think, yeah, the point is that she's trying to make these connections because of even things about language that she doesn't really quite understand or believe or real. Like the, the whole idea of a synonym is, or a, of a homophone or right. a homonym is odd to her. Right. And she picked all this up from her tutors with her and Thecla. But, you know, I, I'm not sure how formal all of this education is. The exultant classes might well have more access to various and hard to get information than the average person, but they're, you know, divining the past by the same incomplete and varying means that we use to comprehend the exposition of this particular novel. And we get a little Earthless Reddit debate between Thea and Vodalus about the origin of Earth's name. <laughs> he says, You're wrong in that, I fear. I have it on good authority that this world of ours has been called by that name from the utmost reaches of antiquity. Still, your error is so charming that I would rather have it that you're correct and I'm mistaken. Oh, that's so condescending. <laughs> but she likes it. She smiles at him because she thinks, oh, he's being nice to me. Yeah. We, we, we never have a response like that on the Earth list, I'll tell you. <laughs> and Vodalus just re resumes talking to Severian. He acknowledges that while Thea's tale might not have accurately explained why Earth is called as it is, it does point out that, quote, in those times mankind traveled by his own ships from world to world and mastered each and built on them the cities of man, those were the great days of our race, when our fathers, fathers, fathers strove for the mastery of the universe. I think there were probably more fathers than that, uh, unless the exultants are all clones, in which case, you know, maybe not. Right. So one last thing, though, just on the naming conventions, it's also wolf. So we should be careful that whenever somebody says, yeah, that's probably wrong, of <laughs> taking them at their word. And that's true. There may be some sense here that, you know, in some ways to Vodalus is wrong because he's like, no, I've heard it. it's called Earth forever, but obviously it's not always been called U-R-T-H. Right? Yes, it's, that's it's true. It's a different, a different name. So that sounds similar. So there's, there's all kinds of layers there of how you could get things wrong. And that story, it's been bugging me because it seems like the kind of thing Wolf would tell that isn't quite right, but is probably way, way more right than what Vodalus says. Right. Yeah. So her being wrong is, is going to be way more right. But yeah, I'm, I still haven't quite pieced together exactly how, and this is the only time we ever get discussion of colonizing different planets, right? Um, well, there in, might in be some in Syriaca, right? She talks about the the AIs going out and coming back, but she doesn't ever really talk about where they are or different planets. Hmm. So yeah, this is that's the only thing. And the only reason I would say that is really because of thinking how colonizing different planets plays such an important role in the next seven books <laughs> that I would want to kind of come back to this and think about that. I, I don't think, I, I just got to admit, I don't believe at all that there's anything about blue and green hidden in this little back and forth right here. I don't think Wolf was quite that developed. With no, those I, I, yet. I don't agree with that. But still something about, about planets. I don't know. I, I've got to come back to it because I still feel like it's, 
there ought to be some, some, I feel like there's some other truth in what she's saying that is connected to the Norn somehow that I just haven't picked up on. No. And I couldn't find anything. I went, this is the one thing I really spent a lot of time this week looking back through earth and Reddit, trying to see if I could find anyone that have some good way to put this together to make it true. And I, I didn't find anything. So if anybody else has something or remembers, this would be one I definitely want to talk about. No. Oh. But, you know, the way he talks, it does appear that some people do travel between worlds with the help of alien powers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That that's not just a myth. That that's no. actually his immediate goal. But also we've been talking about the ship and, and how uh, Jonas has just been talking about traveling. And Hathor has been on ships. And then even just the word Kakajin, like I think it's pretty clear from the way that they talk about things that Kakajin means some kind of off-worlder. And I yeah. still don't know whether that's supposed to specifically mean alien or human from another place, but it definitely is meant to be someone from off-world. And we know, too, that the moon has been terraformed right. <laughs> in yeah. some way or another, right? So we we definitely have that. And they've even talked specifically about how the moon was changed and it it wasn't always green right. so so yeah we've definitely had real people traveling to different planets and colonizing them and he even mentions galaxies so yes yes uh, I, again don't know whether that's hyperbole uh, whether this is just something that's happened inside the solar system but the way we know that Zadkiel's ship will work later on and the fact that they talk about different galaxies i i think that what they really mean is things way 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 far away not yes. just the solar system, but that's always my sense of this world that the solar system is just one place among countless other places so in the universe, stars. or at least well, it had been, or at well, least at one point, whether or not humanity still is that wide um, and still is that far around in this, in this world. I don't know, but um, I think at one point the implication is that yes, there were definitely people living all over the place. And not just in the solar system. Well, Thea's going to explain that the Alzabo itself has, right. is a creature from another planet. Exactly. And that's probably not Mars. So, yeah. So at last, Bodilus stops talking, and Severian, feeling the silence, says, Sir, we are much diminished in wisdom from that age, and basically giving Bodilus a chance to continue to talk, which he no doubt enjoys. Yeah. And he has a lot to say. Ah, uh, now you strike to the heart. Yet with all your perspicacity, which is perception and discernment, you mistake it. No, we are not diminished in wisdom. We are diminished in power. Study has advanced without let up. But even as men have learned all that's needful for mastery, the strength of the world has been exhausted. We exist now, and precariously, upon the ruin of those who preceded us. While some skim the air in their flyers 10,000 leagues in a day, we others creep on the skin of the earth, unable to go from one horizon to the next before the westernmost has lifted itself to veil the sun. You spoke a moment ago of checkmating that mewling fool, the autark. I want you to conceive now of two autarks, two great powers striving for mastery. The white seeks to maintain things as they are, the black to set man's foot on the road to domination again. I call it the black by chance, but it would be well to remember that it is by night that we see the stars strongly. They are remote and all but invisible in the red light of day. Now, of those two powers, which would you serve? And then in the silence, Severian says, the black, surely. <laughs> and one little thing, but just about the sky metaphor there, 
there is kind of like a third option and that's with the sun being bright again, which I know <laughs> would still kind of like diminish the sky, but it would also, I mean, if, as long as we're sticking with the metaphor, it would bring all the light of those stars right to earth instead of uh, uh, yeah. having to go away. Yeah. So, and also, you yeah. know, Votilis is his model, his, his plan is essentially that the earth is done. We're mm -hmm. done with the earth. We need to get in our ships and take off and take over the galaxy elsewhere. Mm -hmm. He does no yep. plan whether, whether earth is destroyed, whether and becomes ushes or whether it just slowly creeps to a uh, you know, frozen ember and dies. That is irrelevant to him. Right. Yep. I think so. And it's also the word he uses here is domination. That what we need to do is set man's road on the foot on the road to domination again. Right. And we've talked mastery, before, mastery and domination. Yeah. And we've talked before about maybe some of the connections to the Megatherians, but I mean, that idea of being the dominant creature over something else, that's precisely what the Megatherians want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also, it's always wrapped up in taking power away from something else and sort of lording it over them. Um, but there's not really much there about self-rule or like wise self-rule or anything that, right. that like that. It's more just, you know, being the master in the sort of ever, like somebody has to be master and the current, <laughs> and the current autark is not a good master. And so we're going to, it's going to be us. Yeah. And incidentally, this whole analogy of black and white chess pieces and the color not designating good or evil, but only to differentiate the pieces, yeah, is exactly the way number five describes Aunt Janine in the fifth head of Cerberus, like mm. a black queen chess piece uh, because she's floating and missing legs, not black for any judgmental reason, only to designate a difference from a white queen, a different person that number five says he'll never meet. Mm -hmm. And here, though, I think the, I mean, especially with the foliage and cloaks and, and the tortures being the black one and Severian being black and bringing back the sun that, um, you know, there's definitely something in all this, too, of an irony here. I mm -hmm. think that that even though he says, yes, we're the black and that means that, you know, it's just because we're we're actually interested in the further away <laughs> stars and whatnot. Right. But I think the, the irony is that, no, actually, we're going to get to a place where, yeah, Severian trades black for his... For his white, for his Aria path, yeah. Yes, at the end, and yeah. So, so here that would seem a little bit more like, uh, you know, and a rhetorical move to make something right. seem better. Yeah. Well, Vodalus is happy over Severian's answer anyway, but he warns Severian that quote, "As a man of sense, you must understand that the way to reconquest cannot be easy. Those who wish no change may sit hugging their scruples forever. We must do everything." We must dare everything. So, Fulis says that man isn't going to return to the stars by following their consciences. Mm -hmm. He's going to have to be willing to break a few eggs, to mm -hmm. do some things that offend his conscience. And someone recently proposed the question of why the heroes want a human, the right human, who's justified and capable to decide whether to bring the new son or not. And I think it could be argued that it's simple morality. They don't feel justified in making that choice, and so they look for a human who's willing to make that choice one way or the other, despite their preferred choice. That is a bit more like that sort of self-governing thing rather than dominating over something else. Right. Like you, you, it's kind of like saying, this is pushing it too far maybe, but it's almost like saying that you know we could just save you regardless, but we're going to make sure that you want to be saved and that you earned it somehow or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, there is there is something to that. 
And everyone then starts to eat and chit-chat again. Severian, under his breath, reveals something to Vodalus that he did not reveal even to Jonas until this morning, that he has the claw of the conciliator. He tells him for fear that Vodalus would think that he was, quote, faithless. Severian says, he was a better intriguer than I. Vodalus doesn't know what Severian will say, but he can tell it is something Severian does not think everyone else should know about. Mm-hmm. So Vodalus looks the opposite direction from Severian or straight ahead and just pretends to eat and says, what is it? Out with it. And Severian tells him. And I think Vodalus' reaction bears investigation because it reveals what Vodalus perceives as his team and what you think about what he thought affects a lot of what you think of what's going on in the bigger picture of this mm-hmm. story. He's not looking at Severian. He's looking straight ahead. But his eyes, when he when he tells him what he has, his eyes look over at him. And Severian offers to show it to him. And Volus says at first, no, not here. And then he says, no, better, not at all. Severian no doubt assumes the clock would be a valuable talisman to unite his forces or ransom to the autark for a huge mm-hmm. sum of money. But Vodalus, I think he's right in his practicality about that. He tells Severian it's beyond value, which means it's worthless. Because, you know, if Vodalus were to keep it, it could unite the Commonwealth against him. He'd stolen the claw. And if he tried to ransom it, same thing. But he doesn't instruct Severian to give it back either, or make a gesture of himself returning it. He tells Severian to hold on to it and then throw it in the pit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he changes his appeal to Severian. All right, you and I are men of sense. Despite his words, there is a tinge of fear in his voice. But, you know, the rabble believe it to be sacred, a performer of all manners of wonders. If I were to possess it, they would think me a desecrator and an enemy of the theologumon minon. <laughs> There's too many syllables in that word. Yeah, it's a rough word. And that's an interesting word, though. A, a theologumenon is w- that which is said about God or divine thing. So Vodalus is saying, I think, that if he were to possess the claw, the people would think he was a desecrator of God so-called. It's a highfalutin word, but it's a fancy way to denigrate theological talk. Yeah, I think it'd be like if, if somebody, you know, a non-believer would talk about the almighty or something. Right, right, like yeah, right yeah. Now. But, you know, it's not just politics of the Commonwealth and, you know, the regular people that he fears. Also, if he were to possess it, he thinks, quote, our masters would think me turned traitor. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Craig, that's interesting. It touches on either the way the Megatherians view Severian as a conciliator or the way Vodalus thinks they view him. And it's long been speculated that the Megatherians don't have anything to fear about the new sun. They won't be harmed in the flood. Okay, that's true. But they don't desire anything about the planet Earth either, any more than Vodalus does. Right. What is valuable about Earth is the human beings on it, the future generations as well who will be born there. And if you ask why do the Megatherians want to control humans, I'll ask you, why do you think anyone wants to be president of the United States? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that does, I mean, we just mentioned how he's talking about man as domination. And that's one reason why, I mean, I think too, this is the first total dead giveaway that Vodalus has that says he's in league with the Megatherians. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I, if I'm right, like this is the one time we get the idea that yes, he is in league with 
But I mean, there's no other person right. or creature or whatever that the, that our masters could be. Well, there was point, a hint right? in that Thecla herself was had that Hydra bracelet. Right, but that's the it. Hydra's, right, and that's a that's a deeply hidden hint. This is a this is a straight. Um, I mean, this is pretty much straight. Not up. Hydra. Uh, what yeah, is it? The, uh, a, a, um, the Kraken. The Kraken. The Kraken. Kraken. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but yeah, so this is the a dead giveaway, or I mean, just a straight up saying of it. I think. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're right. So and then cross that with how he just talked about man being the domination, the dominator or right. The mastery, right? Like that's really what's involved here is not, is really sort of like power. It's, it's again, a kind of having power over people. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, even if, um, Vodalus doesn't know that the idea of the new sun coming will cause a flood or something like that. The, the whole point I think is that he, whatever the conciliator represents, they know that it represents something that's going to make it impossible for the megatherians to win, whether it's, it's literally getting rid of people or whether it's maybe having people be undominatable like they're for whatever reason. Right. And so, so something about the conciliator legend and the claw is, is opposed to it. So it's, it's, it's something that would, that is sort of like the true other side. It seems like not the autark, but something about the conciliator and Vodalus is sort of straight up saying that. Yeah. And it's hard for me to imagine that Vodalus actually believes there's a new sun coming or the the conciliator or any of these wonders, which makes it interesting that he believes the megatherians themselves care Right, right. But that's that's why I was saying it seems like for some reason this is like saying whatever it is about the conciliator legend, that's what would make him think that they turn traitor, right? right? And it's like, I don't know that there's any necessary, I mean, once you read Earth of the New Sun, you can see that there's a connection between maybe the Autark whole process and the New Sun. But at this point, there's no real... Right sense at all that you know the autarch is maybe preparing for this or something we don't know about the test really at this point or anything like that um so we don't know that to to us it seems like oh okay well this if you're reading this for the first time this is saying the conciliator is maybe the real enemy of the megatherians not the good autarch or something like that whereas up to this point it's been seeing as autarch versus votalist and autarch maybe versus the megatherians because of the war or whatever's going on let me let me take a shot at trying to see the new sun religion and the conciliator and the cloth from, from the megatherians perspective, mm-hmm. which I admit is still, still kind of, it's, it's pretty occluded. So it seems that when most of humanity are destroyed, the planet would not be very valuable to them for a long time because there's so few people, because the people are so backwards, you know, it's no difference than running you know, controlling the sea life under the ocean. So the people who would come after that might well be beyond their ability to tame because Baldender says that's what they wanted. They didn't want to destroy humanity. They only wanted to tame them, which Mm -hmm. is to say they wanted to bend humanity to their own desires. Mm -hmm. And anyway, that's the way it seems to me. The, The green men who lack a need to tame nature in order to survive would be more difficult to tame themselves. Mm-hmm. Not to say that they would be above vices. Malrubia says that the humans that made the animals, that made the heroes were hardly nice guys. But the reset can only do the Megatherians harm. At the very least, it'll delay things for millennia. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but in the Citadel of the Autarch, the Autarch tells Severian that in exchange for Severian, Abaya would give him 
all of Askia, all of Asia, however you choose to pronounce it. So given all these pieces, what would Abaya have done with Severian if he had him in his power? Bodalus probably assumes he would kill him if he believed in conciliators and miracles. But it doesn't seem to me that they would do that, or even that they could. They wanted to influence Severian in his decision when he went to Yesod. They wanted to convince him not to bring the new son. Yeah. Which brings us back to the claw. Why is it in the Megatherian's interest to care whether Bodilus is promoting the veneration of the claw? Perhaps, okay, I, let me try it first Severian solution and get it over with. <laughs> There's another player on the field. The claw is not directly associated with Severian at all. The claw is a symbol of the first Severian's activity in the world. From his place, circumfused to the borders of Bria, because he's entered those mirrors, he'll act in all sorts of ways that are directly associated with the claw, which is directly associated with the coming of the new sun. And that activity is contrary to them because it influences our Severian. I can see that. I yeah. can see that. I don't know. It's a, I mean, I, it's a stretch. It's stacked on many, many things. But yeah. Still, I mean, I've, I've gone all the way through this book several times. I've gone through Earth of the New Sun at least twice all the way through. I don't really understand the Megatherians at all. No, not not exactly. And I think you have to assume a couple of things. Whether or not there's the whole first Severian thing or not, the Megatherians know that Severian is gonna be important. Like maybe it's because uh, they they can walk the corridors of time too. And so they see that he's, he's going to be important. So yeah, I think the most likely thing is that they want to influence him. And then if they can get him on their side, then he can say, no, I don't want the new son. Maybe instead what he could do is say, no, actually what I want to do is join the Megatherians and this whole Ashia route. Maybe that's really the best way that we right. should be doing things. So all of that seems to make a little more sense. As for why they would they would want him, because he's going to whatever his destiny is, he's going to be important in the future of humanity. And so they want to win him over to their side. I mean, I think that's why Juturna doesn't immediately just quash him. Right. Like right. her whole thing is to try to seduce him. And she sticks with that for a long time. And she's never really about trying to destroy him, which you would think that if they just wanted to get rid of him, then they had a great shot because Juturna could have just kept him under the water. Well, look how many times Aegea comes in and comes so close to killing him with her yeah. assassins, just hiring the assassins around. Surely the Megatherians could hire plenty of assassins. Yeah. If, if yeah. Jonas is a spy, they could instruct him to do it. Yeah. But I just keep thinking back to the second chapter. And I mean, they had a chance to kill him then and they very explicitly didn't. And That's it was true. all, then there's the things about the dreams and about coming down and will teach you to breathe underwater and will you know, <laughs> give you all these other powers and things like that. So they're definitely trying to seduce him. Right. Yeah, I think so. And then Vodalus, I think, intends to ask Severian how he got the claw. He says, you must tell me. And then he's interrupted by a messenger. So Vodalus gets up a few steps away and listens. And Severian says he looks like a handsome schoolmaster with a boy. The messenger's head only comes up to Vodalus's shoulder. Eventually, the two of them walk away. Severian continues eating until it was only him, Jonas, and Thea at the table. And one other guy, we'll learn this guy's name is Chuniold, and he's mm. Thea's servant. 
And one other thing too, just the fact that something happens and we don't really know what it is, but apparently whatever it is, is more important than the fact that Severian has the claw, (laughs) which shows a lot. Like, even though we're all worried about this stuff, I think in the end, yeah, Vodalus just doesn't believe it. Like if otherwise, whatever, whatever sort of weird strategic thing they're working on, right? Like, even if it's just getting ready for the dinner tonight that they have to go worry about, um, it takes him away. Yeah, it's just a mild right. complication. Whereas, right. Whereas if this is actually was and he believed in the conciliator and this is the single proof which has all these mystical powers, yeah, you wouldn't just walk up away and go away because somebody's like, hey, one of the guards is drunk or something <laughs> or whatever's going on, right? So Yeah, he, yeah. and he's going to leave it to Severian to dispose of it. Right. Yeah, and maybe right. he won't. He doesn't know what Severian's going to do. It's yeah. not... He, he knows what he would prefer done, and he advises Severian, but he's not going to make sure he do, does it. Right. Yeah, apparently it's not, because it never comes up again, right? right? Even when he talks to him later and gives him the task, it's never, he just doesn't really mention it. Yeah. So, uh, Thea says, you're to join us, yet you do not know our ways. And perhaps she means that, you know, they've never participated in the Satanic Eucharist feast, and she knows that they will tonight. Being willing to participate in it is a kind of test itself. Incidentally, when Thea and Vodalus eat Thecla, they're going to learn a lot about Severian from his time in the cell, and mostly it's going to encourage them about his loyalty to their cause. I would think so. Although I do have questions about how much other people actually remember about this whole situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and we can get there when we actually get to it when when Severian talks about it. Well, but... they seem to think it's important. It's not just Right. And I, I get the sense that for them, it's sort of a proof of loyalty and it's a kind of uh, like, I mean, literally a kind of bonding experience. Like you all share in this, this feeling and experience, but they all, they all talk about how quickly the actual memories fade. Right. Yeah. Like it's one of the other guys, I think when they're talking about it are like, or was it the soldier? Was it the cultillari who are, no oh, shoot. Who is it? There's, I really am We're, blanking now. There's some other conversation where somebody's talking about how, oh yeah, drown. I can never. He's going to be drowned. Yeah, gonna, I'm going to drown. But but then he's like, I can never quite remember exactly what what I yeah. remembered or what I experienced in detail. Well, yeah. apparently, Vodalus is doing it because, you know, by, for Severian to unite with Thecla, because Thecla's loyal, therefore it will influence Severian to be loyal. Yeah, I think but that they could must, be it too. But you know, they, he says and maybe this is, you know, not true. He is a liar after all. But he gives the the sense that in order to return to the stars, they're going to have to have all of this extra knowledge and they can't be yeah, sidelined by their consciences. So he must they, they must be gleaning some kind of knowledge that I, they keep that they retain. Yeah, and I don't know what that is because it seems very weird like this is this is an inefficient way <laughs> to, <laughs> to like have vague memories of other people's lives and you have to go work really hard to get their people and you know and honestly Thecla is not the most important to the cause. You know, no, I don't no. think well, she's I mean, been... we never we don't we find out that we don't find out that she played some super, super deep, important role. True. Right. Yeah. She was, so, saying, she mean, was just sending letters. Of course she, I mean, yeah. she, she had information at house absolute that they didn't have. Yeah. But yeah. it's, yeah. So I don't know. I, that's one thing that I feel like really is left kind of vague. So I've always found myself trying to figure out if there's more of a kind of <laughs> team building at reason for it. Yeah. I wonder, but I don't know. I wonder if Vodalus's orders to kill Severian ultimately are related to anything he's learned by unifying with Thecla 
or due to something Severian learned without knowing its significance. That could be. I don't have anything in the text to base that on. Yeah, it's probably not necessary. I mean, look how casual he is about the death of the followers that Severian slaughtered on the way in. Yeah. And yeah, and why he eventually has him killed doesn't make sense to me. I just don't understand. <laughs> just because, what, well, he's a he just feels like he's a he's a wild well, it, card. I think I know it just seems like in the end that's just a complicated way to get rid of somebody. It's like he's going to send this letter to their man, but the letter, the main purpose of the letter seems to be kill this messenger. No, I think he has some other information <laughs> okay, as okay. well. I don't know. I don't remember at the top of my head exactly what it is, but I think yeah, there was some yeah. other information, but we do find out that the, the last thing in the letter was to kill him. Yeah. And, and you know, he's, he's got to get someone to the House Absolute. Severian yeah. seems to be going to the House Absolute. He's a minister of the government. He's probably going to be allowed. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All fair. All fair. The, Thea then asks, do you need money? And Jonas is really practical and pipes right up. That's something that's always welcome, Chatelaine, like the misfortunes of an older brother. <laughs> that would be a <laughs> sailor's joke. Mm-hmm. She says, shares will be set aside for you from the, this day we all take. When you return to us, they will be given to you. Meanwhile, I have a purse for each of you to speed you on your way. This and that bunch, shares thing sounds very Robin Hoodish. Yeah, yeah. You know, that just goes back to the Robin Hood and the Liege of Leaves kind of thing of like this mystique that he has. Of you know, we're we're all we're bandits out here, and so we all get a take. Right. Um, but but that also that sort of having a take doesn't quite mesh with her ideas that she's going to talk about here in a second yeah. about being new royalty or right. Something well, like this that. bunch is just rolling in cash and. Let's face it, it's a very you know communal situation that she's describing. Essentially, everyone has a financial incentive to stay loyal. Yeah. So it's yeah. a it's it's a business model. Mm-hmm. So Varian just picked up on what's going on. He says, Whoa, wait, wait, we're leaving? <laughs> and she says, didn't he tell you you were? Odalis will tell you all about it at supper. At supper. <laughs> and this strikes Severian as a lot of meals in one day. Remember, yes, he's this raised is, at the- This is our anti-Hobbit moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he's made, raised at the Madison, where they don't necessarily always get, you know, three meals a day. But of course, Severian won't be exactly tucking in at the meal tonight. <laughs> Thea plans her entire daily schedule around nursery rhymes. She says, <laughs> there will be a supper tonight when the moon is bright. And then she has, someone will be sent to fetch you. And then she quotes the rest of the verse. Dine at dawn to open your eyes. Dine at noon that you be strong. Dine at eve, then talk long. Dine at night if you be wise. Now that dine at night thing is a key because, you know, what they're going to eat. And they're going to eat Thecla and then be wise. They will get her mind, yeah. And then she sends them with uh, Chuniold to take their naps. <laughs> like they're five-year-olds. Yep. Of course, Severian hasn't slept in over 24 hours, so. Right, and this is a cool little part where they they find this nice little spot by a by a brook, right? And it goes back to that thing I was saying about something about the forest being like rooms and, and having special areas and things, but it's also very pastoral. It's all very peaceful. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it adds to this veneer that, yeah, Vodalus is going to preside over this wonderful world where there's kind of leisure everywhere and right. beautiful meals and, you know, and naps. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when Chuniold says, uh, 
come with me. You know, that's the first word he's spoken. But before he leaves, Severian tells Thea that he wants to talk to her more later. He says, I know something that concerns your schoolmate. Remember that Thecla once asked Severian that if he saw Thea again, he should tell Thea about her. And it's too late to do her any good now, but he's keeping his promise. Severian says, she saw that I was serious in what I said, and I saw that she had seen. So Severian and Thecla have a moment. In software security, this is called a handshake. She acknowledges, <laughs> she gets what he's talking about. He acknowledges that he received her acknowledgement. So. This is one of those things too, this is total non sequitur, but in Dune, Frank Herbert has all the characters do this all the time. Like, I don't know how many times in Dune, it actually got irritating when I was reading like <laughs> fifth or sixth book, where every character will like look at someone else and I knew that they were thinking what I was thinking. And therefore, <laughs> they were thinking something else that they had to hide what they were thinking. But I knew what they were. Yeah, that's, that kind of thing always drives me nuts. But Frank Herbert okay, did that smart so much. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> Herbert does that so often in Dune, it gets silly. Yeah. <laughs> So then they follow Chuniold through the forest for about an hour. There's a lot of walking. And they finally arrive at a grassy bank beside a stream where they're told to wait and sleep if they can. And I don't, why an hour away? Like that's the, that's another thing I don't quite like, like why, uh, why so far away? Uh, well, they may be sequestering them. Yeah. So that, you know, they're not considered. 100% loyal. They're not yeah. actually fully in the group yet. Yeah. They don't want them listening in on stuff. Yeah. That makes most sense. Yeah. So they finally arrive at a grassy bank beside a stream where they're told to wait and sleep if they can, that someone will come for them after dark. Then Severian asks indirectly if they're prisoners. He says, oh, what if we were to leave? And Chunhild says, there are those all through this wood who would know our lieges will concerning you. In other words, the woods are full of hidden guards. And if he tries mm -hmm. to escape, he'll be killed. If he chooses to stay, he can think of himself as a guest. If he tries to leave, he'll be treated as a prisoner. Bodles's camp holds the illusion of freedom, but only an illusion. So Bodles constantly talks about them having masters, not allies, and of the people in his camp serving him. Now, Severian fills Jonas in on what happened with Bodilus in the necropolis. He says that he told Jonas everything that he's written. I don't know if he told him explicitly that he killed a volunteer, but I'm, I'm sure Jonas could divine that. Jonas says, I see why you will join this Bodilus. You must realize that I am your friend, not his. What I desire is to find the woman you call Jalinta. In other words, you can join Vodalus if you want, but loyalty to Vodalus is not my character's motivation. <laughs> and then he gives us a motivation dump on Severian. Yeah, and all of this is good. But yeah. he says, you want to serve Vodalus and to go to Thrax and begin a new life in exile and to wipe out the stain you say you've made on the honor of your guild, though I confess I don't understand how such a thing can be stained and to find the woman called Dorcas, and to make peace with the woman called Asia while returning something we both know of to the women called Pellerines. By the time he finishes this iteration of Severian's plans, it's become a joke. It, Jonas is smiling, and Severian is laughing. It's kind of like explaining Severian's trip to get to Avern 
for the duel. Let's go to the Botanic Garden, but first destroy the Pellerines Cathedral and steal the claw, and then get Chant caught in the Sand Garden and wander through the jungle and talk to Grandpa and resurrect Grandma and reconnect <laughs> with Hildebrand. Yeah, and then this is the good part. And he says, and though you remind me of the old man's kestrel that sat on a perch for 20 years and then flew off in all directions, I hope you achieve these things. But I trust you realize that it is possible, just barely possible, perhaps, but possible that one or two of them may get in the way of four or five of the others. <laughs> Which does happen. Yes. And Severian will do all those things, and most of them will get interrupted by several new agendas that he adds to himself. And then Severian says, what you're saying is very true. I'm striving to do all those things, and although you might doubt it, I am giving all my strength and as much of my attention as I can to all of them. But it's true things aren't going as well as I wanted. My <laughs> divided ambitions have landed me in no better place than the shade of this tree where I am a homeless wanderer, while you, with your single-minded pursuit of one all-powerful objective, look where you are. In <laughs> yeah. other words, your method has left you no better than me. Yep, which is cool. I, yeah. I like that. Because so, it starts off, too, it's kind of a little bit of a joke about, I feel like, like Wolf saying, I've made this incredibly complicated thing. <laughs> but yeah, but then even the simple-minded guy is there with him. Yeah. yeah. And this brings to mind again that Jonas's goal before he met Severian mm -hmm. and Jolenta is still murky as well. Uh, maybe he's a spy for Abaya. Maybe that's why he attached himself to Severian or maybe, and the text is more supportive of this, he's following Severian because he'll need him to gain access to Jolenta's company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's late afternoon now and they talk for a few hours. And Severian says, birds twittered overhead, and it was very pleasant to have such a friend as Jonas, loyal, reasonable, tactful, and filled with wisdom, humor, and prudence. At that time, I had no hint of his history. The implication is that Severian now feels like he understands much more of it. Yeah. He says, at that time, I had no hint of his history, but I sensed that he was being less than candid about his background, and I sought, without venturing direct questions, to draw him out. Now... Jonas is being cagey about his history, which suggests he's not some total amnesiac, even though he'll understand more when they get to the antechamber. I suppose Jonas knows he's a robot or does to some degree. He could be hiding that. He, maybe the two sides are only vaguely aware of each other. Yeah. Uh, he could be hiding who he's been working for recently. He's, he's, he's cagey and it's not obvious ever why he's being cagey, at least not to me. Right. And that still, that even came up when they were talking before. Like, I'm still not sure why he's, why he was so cagey about answering Severian's questions. Right. right? I still just can't figure out exactly if Jonas knows what he is, or if he only has hints of what he is, or if he just doesn't want to admit to himself what he is. All those things could be possible, but I don't know which one is right. Right. In this conversation, Severian says, I learned, or rather, I thought I did that his father had been a craftsman. So by this, we understand that this is the conclusion. So Varian draws from their conversation, but he now knows it's not exactly true. His father, that is his maker, was, I guess, a robotics designer. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's another one of those Wolfian kinds of statements, which right. could mean many things. Yeah. yeah. And heck, you know, maybe the human parts of him were. His father mm -hmm. was a craftsman. Who knows? Yep. 
and that he had been raised by both parents in what he called the usual way, though it is, in fact, rather rare, and that his home had been a seacoast town in the South, but that when he last visited it, he found it so much changed that he had no desire to remain. Okay, I do think this is Jonas merging his past with his human side, who perhaps yeah. is Miles. And I do think that somehow Jonas's human parts are Miles, although though it's not clear to me how that can be. So Miles, or let's just say the human donor of his parts, they were yeah. raised on a southern town on the coast. And at the time, it was actually fairly rare to grow up in a home with your biological parents, or perhaps where Jonas's robot side came from, it's rare at that time, because this is, you know, from Earth's interstellar travel period, mm -hmm. right? It must be yep. because they've gotten lost between stars. And we know that Typhon was born from a vat, not birthed by a mother and father. After the crash, Jonas returned to the town where his human donor grew up, but it was many thousands of years later and the town held no appeal for either of them. Uh, that's the way I read it. Uh, obviously, it's not the only possible way, I suppose. Yeah. And the timeline, too, is confusing. I don't know, like, was there a crash in the recent past and he was turned, he was fixed with human parts in the recent past? Or did that happen a long time ago and he'd still been traveling further? Like, it, it could be that, yeah, the human donor who, or donor in quotes, but, you know, the whoever the, the human side of him is, yeah, we're did were they from the far past but he's still been traveling as this dual yeah. well, person perhaps, i mean it, uh, perhaps i just would, don't know perhaps he's a robot you know they had a crash there was a a, a navigate right there's um mm -hmm. kim lee song which i i, I gather mm -hmm. seems to have been part of his crew um so they're they're from a long time perhaps the robot jonas's robot side was you know uh an automaton on the or a robot on the ship mm -hmm. and his human part was one of the crew yep that could well be it too yeah. it's just never clear yeah well now severian is looking at him he thinks he's about 30 years old from the looks of him but from this conversation and earlier ones that he at this time of the story he concluded that he had to be a little older than that so severian probably is figuring 40 years old. He thinks right. this because you know Jonas seems to have a lot of historical knowledge about the Commonwealth and Earth culture. So he figures he's well-read in Chronicles about pastimes. He says, quote, I was still too naive and unlettered myself, despite the attention Master Palamon and Thecla had given my mind, to think that anyone much below middle age could be so well-read. Severian <laughs> said that Jonas, quote, had a slightly cynical detachment from mankind that suggested he had seen a great deal of the world. Well, all those things are believable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course, uh, this is because Jonas doesn't strictly consider himself part of mankind. It's certainly mm -hmm. not the mankind that he shares the world with today. So after they've talked a long time, Thea returns. So they both stop talking and watch her approach. She hasn't seen them yet. Remember, they got dropped off by Chuniold alone, and she didn't go there. Apparently, Chuniold has told her where to find them, and Severian says, she was coming toward us without having seen us, so that she moved in the blind way people do who are merely following directions. 
At times, a shaft of sunlight fell on her face, which, if it chanced to be in profile, suggested Thecla's so strongly that the sight of it seemed to tear at my chest. All right, a couple things. If we're strictly following the clues of shafts of light designating a family member, then there's another clue. I realize it's usually more complicated than that. Here we have an inversion from the usual. In the past, Severian would look at Thecla and detect a resemblance of Thea, and it would provoke a very, very strong sexual reaction. Now he looks at Thea and sees Thecla, and it has a similar response, or at least maybe a more emotional one. Although, I mean, potentially not the same. He notes that Thea walks like Thecla too. He says it's like the proud forest Rakos stalk that should never have been caged. A forest Rakos is a huge flightless bird with a large hooked beak that inhabited Argentina 25 to 13 million years ago. It was eight feet tall, two and a half meters. So Severian is saying Thea and Thecla walk like giant birds, but in a proud, dignified way. He also seems to be saying that in Severian's time, Foros Rakoses are frequently kept as caged pets. Yeah. And he draws the analogy that Thecla, and maybe inferentially Thea, being in a cell was also inappropriate to their wildness and grace. So uh, Severian says that Thea and Thecla's family, quote, must be a truly ancient family. Look at her, like a dryad. It might be a willow walking. And Jonas responds, well, those ancient families are the newest of all. In ancient times, there was nothing like them. And this is, for a lot of people, a confirmation that the exultants and exultant culture are transplants from other planets, mm-hmm. uh, maybe Mars or Venus or even further afield. Severian doesn't think Thea was close enough to know what they were saying, but she does seem to have detected Jonas's voice. And so she looks at them and moves toward them at a faster pace. She doesn't run, but she moves very fast because of her long legs. They stand, she comes, and she puts her scarf on the ground and sits on it, looking at the water, the brook. Severian doesn't say he and Jonas sat down, but I think it's implied. He says... When they're all sitting, she's not much taller than they are. So exultant's height must be primarily, but not only, in the lengthening of their yeah, legs. what it seems like, yeah. So she gets right to it. You said you had something to tell me about my sister? And Zavarian said, I was her last friend. She told me they would try to make you persuade Vodalus to give himself up to save her. Did you know she was imprisoned? And Thea looks over at Severian and assumes that he must have been some kind of servant to Thecla in her last days. And she says, yes, I I heard they took her to that horrible place in the slums of Nessus, where I understand she died very quickly. So it's not clear where Thea is getting her information. Since Thecla was supposed to die slowly by the revolutionary, I'm sure the masters wouldn't formally announce the details of her death. The Autark does have informants in the tower. I'm pretty sure Rosha is one of them. So maybe Vodalus got this much information from the Autark, who he considers yeah. his spy. So Varian thinks about how long it took to see the blood trickling under the door. He doesn't seem to think it was all that fast, but he nods anyway. So Varian recounts the details of how Thecla was arrested from what she told him. And Thea says that she's been missing her life at House Absolute, 
But after hearing about people abducting Thecla in the tapestry, rolling her up and taking her off, she says, that's so very characteristic. And it reminds her of why she left. Severian tells her that Thecla missed the court too sometimes. And I bet she did, frankly. She certainly talked a lot about it, he says. But Severian says that she told him that if she ever got out of the tower, she'd never go back to House Absolute. She talked about, quote, the country house from which she took her title, which suggests, I guess, that every Chatelaine is the mistress of a country house somewhere. Thecla told Severian that she would, quote, refurnish it and give dinners there for the leading persons of the region and hunt. And Thecla has a different opinion about rural life and camping out. She says, I've had enough of hunting for now for 10 lifetimes. Yeah. <laughs> but when Vodalus is autark, I will be his consort. Then I shall walk beside the well of orchids again, this time with the daughters of 50 exultants in my train to amuse me with their singing. So Thea definitely dreams of going back to House Absolute. She imagines, I suppose, that there won't be all that constant intriguing the way it is now, or at least she'll never have to worry about being on the wrong side of an intrigue. Seems like it too. And also this is, I think, one of the real giveaways that at least for her, there's no real big revolutionary thing that Vodalus is going to bring about, right? It's like, no, we're just going to be the new Autark. Right. They're not going to change society. They're just going to be more of what she was grew up with. Right. And, but it's now that she's going to be the one in charge. And so that's where it really seems pretty conservative compared to, to any kind of change. Yeah. That there's not going to, for her, it's just the same old thing. And that probably that's what Vodalus maybe has promised her. I don't know. Um, but but I'm not sure like that's I can't tell exactly if that's supposed to say that when you get down to it, Vodalus kind of thinks the same thing. And that's what he actually plans with her. Or if Thea is just presented as she doesn't really get the scope of what Vodalus is saying, or at least or, or even of what he's whether or not he believes it. She's not really playing along very well. It doesn't seem like <laughs> she's not she's not pulling the line of of you know going to the stars and and mastering things and great changes for her. Well, it's just yeah. as long as she's in charge, what does she care? She's we'll do it anywhere. Yeah. I also I remember that Thecla said that an oracle had said she would one day sit on the throne, mm-hmm. and that Thea had always uh, envied her for that. Yeah. But anyway, Thea assumes all of that is just a few months away, so she figures she can put up with it until then. That's an interesting perspective. Thea does not come off as being particularly practical or insightful person about the world and her place in it. No. I don't think we're expected to have a high opinion of her, and I, I don't think Severian ever thinks much of her at all after this meeting. But then again, we'll learn more about the way Thecla was before her imprisonment. And I mm. doubt Severian would have had a very high opinion of her absent that experience. Right. Yeah. With that, Thea gets up, gestures for Severian and Jonas to remain seated. I was happy to hear something now of my half-sister. That house you spoke of is mine now, you know, though I can't reclaim it. So there are no more siblings in Thea and Thecla's family to inherit Thecla's house. She's the last of their line, mm. unless I'm right, and you know there are replacement Other clones, clones to yeah. take their place when Thea dies. I don't think we know what happens to Thea after Agia takes over. I, I can't think of it at the moment. If we do, yeah, I don't remember her 
having any role after, yeah. Yeah. So Thea decides that as a thank you, give him a heads up about what will happen at supper tonight. She frames this as a warning. She knows that Vodalus hinted about it when he says, you know, we're we're gonna have to put away our scruples and such. But Severian just didn't seem to pick up on it. She says, if we and our allies and masters who wait in countries beneath the tides, uh, she's talking about Abaya and the others. Notice she speaks of the undersea regions as merely mm-hmm. other countries that happen to be under miles of ocean water. Yeah. If we and our allies yep. and masters are to triumph, we must absorb all that can be learned of the past. And then she broaches the subject of the analeptic Alzabo. Severian doesn't know about that. He, he, he does, but not the technical name for it. But he has heard stories about the Alzabo animal. Severian gives a similar definition for it that Wolf gave himself in Castle the Otter. And as I note in Chapter 3, episode of Claw, I can't find a literary association for this story. And the legends of the Alzabo or Hyena or any of the its many alternate names. Severian has heard it. He says, the Alzabo comes by night to a house where a child has died and cries to be let in. And that's technically true, but there are details that Severian is not aware of. He doesn't realize how the Alzabo subsumes the personality of a person and eats it and how it's used by grave robbers that he and Master Olton had already discussed. And for a first-time reader, they don't know where this is going either. So Thea gives us background on the Alzabo. Right, right. That animal was brought from the stars long ago, as were many other things for the benefit of Earth. It is a beast having no more intelligence than a dog, and perhaps less. But it is a devourer of carrion and a clawer at graves. And when it is fed upon human flesh, it knows at least for a time the speech and ways of human beings. The analeptic alzabo is prepared from a gland at the base of the animal skull. Do you understand me? And then she leaves, and Severian and Jonas can't look at each other because now they do understand what's going to be served at supper. Mm-hmm. And one little thing I like that is that he said that it's a claw at yeah, graves, that's true. Yeah. and just a fun little play there because yeah. the claw More also resurrect. does everybody's do resurrecting things at from graves. graves. things back as well. Just fun little tiny yeah. play that can go right past you. <laughs> Oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Didn't Hilgren say, they'll be With honest, claws, like a pack of dolls. Yeah. I don't know. Jonas is thinking, Severian, you have some messed up <laughs> friends. It's like it's like when you're telling all your friends about this really cool guy who's coming to visit that you knew in <laughs> high school, and then he shows up, and it turns out he's just a complete wackadoodle as an adult, and your friends are saying, um, what kind of guy were you in high school? <laughs> never mind that jonas is a guy who forgot he's a robot yeah. or whatever yeah. right right he's got his own problems well i'm also curious about what sort of purpose it was that the alzaba was brought to earth yeah because she mentions it as as well as many other things that were useful yeah. for mankind yeah maybe it was some kind of psychological analysis maybe for studies i'd imagine it was from a planet that had no sentient creatures. Its ability helped it find more food. It was, I guess, so. it's only when humans encountered it that its downsides and upsides became yeah. apparent. Yeah. So we got a little window into Earth's deep history, 
and on Jonas. Do you have anything else to say before we close this? I've still got so many questions. Like this one, to be honest, leaves me with more questions than answers. I mean, we've had little things that give us some insight into pieces here and there, but I feel like more than answering anything, it just gives us some more contour of the questions. Yeah. <laughs> for the most part. I mean, the one thing I think I am more solid on this time now is Vodalus's relationship to the Megatherians. Like, I even think I said last time, like the Vodalus is still just a huge question mark to me, but I feel like there are little things in here. Maybe I'd just forgotten that really do connect him to the Megatherians more than I have really realized. Oh yeah. Yeah. He calls them his, his masters. Yeah. His masters. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like I'll have a little bit better version of Vodalus. And I, the question now I have is to what extent the Autark and Inire were playing him if he's also from the megatherians yeah we're being used by the megatherians yeah but yeah but yeah mostly then as far as all the background on jonas and on the alzabo and all this no i i still jonas is yet another one of those big black holes to me in terms (laughs) he's still east i love him i mean he's such a cool guy i feel like but i don't know i still have not pieced together his backstory yeah as well as like yeah awesome yeah well So we get a little window into Earth's deep history and Jonas and the puzzles about them all. Uh, Do you have any better interpretations than what we've laid out here? I certainly hope that you'll reach out to us with your ideas and other comments and thoughts and corrections and complaints, and that you'll bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, email, or the Patreon site. You can find out how to do all that in the show notes. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your wolf-reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the moral fade in. See everyone at supper. Well, I'd like to visit <laughs> the moon On a rocket ship high in the air Yes, I'd like to visit the moon But I don't think I'd like to live there I don't want to live on you I'd like to travel under the sea And visit all the fish everywhere Yes, I travel under the sea But I don't think I'd like to live there and clam aren't real family so I don't want to live in the sea I like to visit the jungle hear the lions roar go back in time and meet a dinosaur there's so many strange places I'd like to be but none of them permanently Cause I don't want to live on the moon No, I don't want to live on the moon I'm grabbing this roughly because I didn't write it down all that. Of the Theologumen. Let's try again. Of the Theologumenon. I could even tell on myself. I gotta, I gotta.
pump it up, man. <laughs> I'm moving a little slow. You've lost your glibness. Yeah, I know. I know. I, it'll it'll come back. 